Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Now a show that's going to give you the truth about the biggest epidemic of our times. We're all a little crazy. And welcome to We're All a Little Crazy podcast, part of the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, sports business reporter Darren Ravel. I am joined, as I am every week, by Eric Hewson, uh, sports executive and founder of uh, We're All a Little Crazy, same here, here Global Mental Health Alliance, and uh, one of our influencers, the hockey great Theo Fleury, and his own Breaking Free Foundation, which has done so much for mental health. And special guest tonight is... One of my longtime friends, pod mates from ESPN, all the way back to 2000 when we worked in the basement in Bristol, Connecticut. It was it was hardly it was, of Building Four. It was hardly the glamour that I imagined when when I came to ESPN. No windows, Andy. Welcome. Uh, we're excited to have you. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be with you guys. So our. Worldwide leader in basements. The worldwide leader in basements and uh, John <laughs> That's ESPN ad hockey, by the way. That's right. That's right. We, we that had was, that we was had, a big deal. That was a big deal for us. When and we, we, had, we had two hockey writers, including right. one one that uh, she had a zagnut on her desk for for seven years. The same one. I remember that. Anyway, uh, to to get to our topic at hand for this podcast, which uh, it became. On the day of, because, and this is what we want to talk about. We want to talk about things that are topical, and this is most topical. We're talking about COVID and what's happened in COVID and how our minds have changed and how we've paid attention to mental health. And at the same time, we're doing things that are trying to jog our mind and do things like memorabilia. And in the last hour, I lost $6,000 in crypto and I'm trying to build it back up. Just the crazy things that we never thought we'd do and live betting and all this. And, and then also to sport and what's going on. So I'm going to start with you, Eric. Um, what have you noticed in general in COVID with how people have reacted um, in society and and dealing with their mental health. You know, the, the interesting thing about Andy, what's up? <laughs> the interesting thing about about what's going on with COVID is it's the first time in the history of our planet where everyone on the planet is dealing with the exact same stressor at the exact same time. And we're all seeing it in front of each other. Right. And so in try to play that out in our mind, what was taken away from us when COVID started, I kind of think of it in three buckets. First off is, you know, we, it almost feels like this black hole. We're kind of floating in space. Where am I type of feeling? And where does that stem from? That It stems from these three buckets. The first is we all have these what-if scenarios that started at the beginning. 
What if I get sick? What if a family member gets sick? What if I my job is taken away? What if we never get back to work and we never work in offices again? Concern, so, concern for ourselves, immediate concern for ourselves, for ourselves and our family and our family, right? But 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 what anxiety really is based on all these what if scenarios? Second thing is, and and I can't wait to hear Andy and Theo's take on this is the loss of routine, which leads to the loss of purpose and loss of identity, right? If I'm Andy Katz, the reporter, and I'm not going into the office the same way I was before, okay, well, then who am I? Right? We all love games. We're reporters. Andy loves being at a game. It's exactly that. And now, and now the reason why talking this in the context of sport is so awesome is because we can take that each of these pieces and I'll get to the third one in a second and say, okay, how does that relate to the average everyday person? Well, when routine goes away for the accountant, for the lawyer, for the school teacher, same thing happens. Right. And then the third piece is, and this is going to be especially be, uh, be impactful when it comes to talking to players is all of the hobbies that we are used to was going to games, going to shows, going to movies, going to dinners with friends. Those all got taken away from us. And though we use those things, as almost buffers for kind of, you know, as we're going through our day, instead of allowing things from the subconscious to always get into the conscious mind, we're able to distract ourselves with things we enjoy. Well, those things were all taken away from us and we had Netflix and chill and that was it, right? So now you combine those three things. What if scenarios racing, loss of purpose and identity from routine going away. And all of a sudden I don't have any of my hobbies to distract me the way that I did before whoa, I feel like I'm floating in this black black hole. And, and I thought, you know, then getting Theo's kind of take on what I just shared there from a player's perspective, Theo, you know, you, whether it's through COVID or whether it's through anything, whether you had an injury, those losses and all those what ifs and all those things I just described, what it feels like to be an athlete in that respect. Yeah, well, it's, it's a completely different routine than what they're used to, right? And they're not playing in front of fans, you know, which is probably, you know, the amount of chemistry, like brain chemistry, body chemistry, you get from playing in front of, you know, a sold out arena. You know, I, I remember, you know, people ask me, what do, what do you miss the most about playing? I go, I miss the 20 seconds where I go from the dressing room and I walk towards the playing field because I start to feel the energy of the stadium, you know, and the music's blasting, the lights are going crazy, you know, and that you just, you know, you get fired up to play. And so. And that, that's, um, what, you know, that, that, that's, that's what the players are addicted to when they leave the game and they, and they don't have it right. Like that's, that's why they want to go back. Yeah. And so, you know, they've lost a piece of that identity, you know, uh, you know, the ego part, you know, that the ego loves, you know, that piece. And so now it's gone. And then, you know, all you can do is you go from the hotel or your home to the practice facility and then back home. That's it. You know, you don't get to go to the Lambo dealership and you don't get to go to the Range Rover dealership and, you know, you don't get to go to the script club and, you know, all these things that, you know, guys are, uh, used to doing, or you're taking your family out for dinner, or you're taking your kids to the park, you know. And uh, but you know, I always look at everything from a trauma lens. And COVID nineteen is the most traumatic event that's happened since World War II. Okay, so all of us who are all predisposed to trauma already, 
we've just added another layer of trauma onto our already existing trauma. Now you've taken away community, right? I can't go to church. I can't go to the arena. I can't go to the places that I always go. So now I'm isolated. And now I'm living completely inside of my own head 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And for me, that's not a good place. You know? Andy, so, I want to, Andy. I, 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 I got a couple things there. Sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I actually got to take this from a couple different angles here. Uh, first, quick sidebar, since we are with hockey people, um, actually, if my career had gone in a different path, I actually was going to be an NHL beat writer because I covered the 1990 Wisconsin National Championship team, which had was loaded with NHL players from uh, Brindamore, Brindamore, uh, Chris Tansel, Sean Hill, um, Dwayne Dirksen was the goalie. Uh, Barry Richter was, I think, a, I think he he came the next year. Um, but anyway, the team was loaded, uh, and I would have been the NHL beat writer for the Milwaukee Journal had the Milwaukee Admirals got in the NHL expansion. Oh, my Blackhawks, God. <laughs> true story. Blackhawks blocked it because they did not want right. another NHL team in their region. So that's just a little sidebar because I was heading down the path of the NHL. But that's anyway. a hell of a sidebar. It is a high sell of a sidebar. <laughs> I, so, I, played, I played the first professional hockey game in the Bradley Center when it was brad, brand new, and I played for the Salt Lake City Golden Eagles, and I have a scar right here. <laughs> Stop that it. happened happened in that game. So well, there you go. All right. So two things I want to address here. First off, from my world, and then the college world. Um, the thing that you address this, Eric, because I think some of us um, forget. Anytime there is a sports broadcast, really any event, but let's just deal with sports here. Think about all the people that are involved. Whether it's the one laying the cable the one driving the truck, and all these people who are majority independent contractors who rely on televised sporting events, all gone a year ago at this time, all out of work, all waiting for that event to come back. And it went for months. And what I have seen in the last few months, when I did go on the road a little bit, and then when I went to Chicago for the Big Ten Network, um, where we had to do all these games from a studio. Uh, so there were a couple of people obviously on site, but for the most part, you took away the majority of people that are doing a game uh, because everything was done remote outside of the camera people on site, maybe a couple of the technical people. Then uh, the incredible loneliness of being in the studio. And I was there for a couple of weeks uh, in Chicago. And then during the NCAA tournament, when I was in Atlanta at Turner, um, first of all, there's stress with all the protocols, okay, in testing and, um, you know, I'll just give you a little behind the scenes here. So at Turner, this is the same thing that's going on with inside the NBA and what we had to deal with with March Madness is in the actual studio, they were very limited as to how many people could be in the studio. So you'd have a couple of camera people and then all, um, like the jib camera and a couple other ones. They were actually being done remotely by all people. Mechanical. Yeah, all robotic. Okay. But, you know, someone has to control them. But they're spread out in the hallway. They had created down this hallway basically like mini studios uh, because everyone had to be separated. 
And then in the buildings, there were multiple times that I was there in Atlanta where um, we would get done and then I would go tape a podcast like we're doing now or I'd do some digital stuff. And I was the only one in the building. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like there'd be like a security guard. I walked out of there a couple of times at like two in the morning after taping and everyone else was spread out all over the country and some people just in Atlanta at their homes. And it was crazy how just like lonely it was and how bizarre it was uh, to just go in and not have the human interaction and that feeling of, you know, a, a little bit of loss because, you know, everything you're doing is still, even though I was on site, was remote. So there were multiple times where, where I would tape this stuff for, for March Madness and Turner where I'm in the studio and I had two people in New York. I had two people at their homes in Atlanta and I'm in their place and I'm by myself. And uh, there were multiple times where I just walked, I, I mean, literally the whole building and nobody's there. And it's just really eerie and it can mess with you because it just, it doesn't feel right. Uh, so I do think that people have to remember that aspect that uh, there are so many other people that were relying on sports to come back for their livelihoods and all the stresses that come with that if they that was taken away. And it was um, from a college student and student athlete. I can actually look at this in, interesting in two different ways, because I have a daughter who's a freshman at Northwestern um, and she's in the theater uh, department. And by the way, up until right now, this fine final quarter, there was no theater um, because there isn't still Broadway and there wasn't on campuses. And now they're just finally doing stuff with masks, but it's taken this long to finally come back. And I can tell you from a college student perspective first, rather than the athlete, the students this whole year have been living in fear, more of contact tracing than of COVID. Because the contact tracing dorms on all these campuses are basically like under lock and key. And you're just put away for 14 days. If you got COVID, you're in a different kind of dorm where there's a little bit more freedom because everyone has COVID. And, you know, in a weird way, it was almost better if you got COVID than if you were traced. And I, then by, the way, by the way, I totally forgot about, right, the... The Andy's a good guess because if you either had a high school senior or a college freshman, this was kind of, and you're the parent of one. This is that's the ultimate nightmare in all this because you're not having Andy had both. He had a college senior who uh, a high school senior who became a college freshman. Like, how about that on parenting and trying to deal with taking your daughter through something that's never happened and trying to be calm? Yeah, and, and last year, uh, there was no prom, there was no graduation, there was no senior skip day, beach weekend, none of that. So all that's lost. Then you have this decision of, do you send your kid to college? And then when they do go, um, it's sort of like Lord of the Flies to me because there's no faculty. Uh, and it's just basically they sent all these kids to campus and said, okay, we're going to take your money. We're going to put you in these dorms, but don't congregate. Don't hang out, which of course you're talking about college freshmen, sophomores, and juniors and seniors to some extent, but you know, especially the freshmen, sophomores, they don't know anyone. Um, and this winter, especially in Chicago was absolutely brutal. I mean, I was there for a week yeah. in February. There's 20 inches of snow. It was, you know, 
wind chills, and that led to even more isolation because at least if you were in a warm weather climate or the weather wasn't bad, you could at least congregate a little outside. Now you throw in, you can't congregate inside, can't congregate outside. Um, and by the way, um, you know, everyone's living in fear of being snitched on, if you will, because they don't want to be contact traced. Oh, and you have to be tested once or twice a week. So there's all that stress. So now take it from the student athlete perspective, okay? They at least had, um, and, and Theo, we're talking a little bit, but, you know, okay, they didn't have the crowds, but they at least had that outlet, which, I, and I talked to players all the time throughout the course of the year. If they didn't have that um, just by itself, that would have been even more disastrous because at least for those couple hours a day for practice and then when they had games, that's when they could actually take off their mask, participate, uh, and, and get that stress release. But their lives, and I don't want to, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people had harder lives, but their lives were pretty strictly controlled. I mean, it was arena or practice gym, apartment or dorm, and that's it. And the only people you interact with are your teammates, and that's it. And that's the way it really was throughout the course of the season for all of them. And what was happening multiple times is if they got COVID, teammate got COVID, or they got contact traced, there were multiple teams that basically were on the shelf for three weeks, including the national championship Baylor Bears. Um, and I talked to many coaches who literally would be driving, you know, to uh, dropping off food. I mean, these are Hall of Fame guys who are like driving around, dropping food at the doors or waving out the window, you know, uh, at their at their players who suddenly, you know, are elite athletes who can't, you know, they can't work out outside of in their room uh, for two weeks at a time. And, and Jay Wright told me at one point this season, a second time when they, they, they were freed of it, then someone else got it. They had to go back into the quarantine. He basically said to his team, look, if you guys don't want to do this anymore, you know, then, then tell me right now. And we did have a couple of individual cases. On the women's side, there were actually a couple teams. Highest profile one was Duke, obviously. But where, you know, the players basically said, no, we want to stick this out. But there were a number of times where coaches told me and players that if it had happened a third time, you know, that's it. I can't deal with it anymore because of the isolation uh, and and the complete removal of any even little form of normalcy that they normally had. What's funny is, you know, as as a fan, I was proud of Northwestern for not having a single COVID positive. But what that took was at the beginning of the season, basically Pat Fitzgerald, the football coach saying, all right, we're going to live at a hotel. You're going to you're going to go practice. You're going to go back to the hotel. You're going to go practice. You're going to go back to the hotel, practice, hotel, practice, hotel, game, hotel nothing. And what's funny is, or not funny, but uh, obviously there were guys who probably would have come back for another year. They had another year of eligibility, but they were so damn exhausted from this exercise, which enabled them to, you know, get to the championship game, Big Ten championship game. And as a fan, you applaud it. Wow, they did it. But then you think about the mental health side, and like even with hockey, with the NHL, where you know you're going from hotel, the same thing last year. Um, it 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 is very very difficult to imagine in the mind of these athletes what it takes during COVID. Well, and especially the workout aspect of, you know, and, and that's what I think. Like Baylor's championship, like I don't want to hear about any asterisks. 
I mean, they were at the top of their game and then suddenly shut down for almost three weeks and had to come back. And that's when they lost two games after that and get back in their rhythm. Otherwise, I think they probably would have gone undefeated like Gonzaga did into that championship game. But think about that. If you're an elite athlete and now suddenly you can't even shoot a basketball and you've got to do everything in your hotel or your dorm room or your apartment uh, for literally almost 14 days. Now, it's unlike like the Australian Open where they made all those athletes quarantine. They actually put Pelotons in their rooms. You know, they did stuff for them because they knew in advance they were going to have to do this when they got to Australia. That didn't happen here. I mean, these are just college students who suddenly, you know, were abruptly quarantined uh, because of a positive or a contact trace, and it weighed heavily on a lot of them. And that's why I think this is, you know, just like last year's championships for the various teams in every sport, I think this year, um, there's no asterisk. I mean, this thing was earned more than maybe any other year because of, of, of the stress that everyone had to go through. And I think, you know, hearing you say stress and in hearing about, you know, the change in routine and what they had to do, something that the reason why our organization exists and why this message exists is because we talked about in the first episode, going away from this concept of mental health is about the one in five with mental illness and instead about the five in five of us whose mental health has been impacted by things like stress and trauma, right? And so, you know, Andy, as you're giving those examples, you know, the the naysayers out there might say, Okay, but yeah, that college athlete still had the coach bringing them food. Or, okay, the N- NBA or NHL player still makes their millions of dollars. Why should we feel bad for them? And I think the important thing to to stress to everyone here, it, Andy, you brought it up in some of the explanations of the routines when you're talking about Jay Wright, which is okay. You're not now. You're not worrying only about an individual. You have to worry about the entire team and whether the team gets impacted. Darren well, brought it up. It happened uh, during the tournament. Uh, and Mark Few led the charge for this, uh, and it was about mental health, was when they were putting up the, the the sort of the constraints for the controlled environment in Indianapolis, at first they had no outside time, zero. Yep. Um, it was literally going to be, because in, in Indianapolis, it's a very unique kind of situation where they have um, three hotels have a catwalk going over to the convention center. So the convention center was the practice arena, and then they had the three hotels and they were going to have hotel, catwalk, convention center where the practices were. And then obviously you had to get on the bus to go to Lucas Oil or Banker's Life. Um, three blocks from each other. <laughs> right. But so Mark said, wait a minute. Like, I need air. Yep. I need to walk. I need to get, you know, just breathe. Um, and he, and he, he talked to me at length about this, about how, you know, and, and and Brian Hainline, who's the NCAA chief medical officer, and I get it. On one side, they were like, listen, we can't have anything penetrate the bubble. And and the few times they had a couple pops at the beginning, people came with it. Once the actual tournament into that weekend started, there were no positives. And I get why they were paranoid. They had to have this event go off. But they finally relented. And, you know, they, they, they basically took over the AAA baseball stadium, which is across the street. Uh, they went to the Indy 500 track. They actually took over two parking garages um, so that they could go on the rooftops. Just for fresh air? Just for fresh air. Wow. And I didn't know that. I actually didn't know that. It's crazy. This is, this is similar. You know, Andy, what you're describing is it's reminding me just because I mentioned before we're friends with Robin Langer in the NHL. What he was describing, what it was like being in the bubble in Edmonton. And, you know, the players basically going hotel 
to facility. And then they had this kind of like patch, this area that kind of, you know, was like their hangout area to congregate. And that's their way that they were able to get. And, and so as you're giving these examples, and I'm sure we're going to keep giving more and more like the, the whole purpose of this show is not, not to say, look, athletes have it worse. It's to say within the athletic world, please understand why we just heard about stories of four major league baseball players that Sports Illustrated put out that are all dealing with mental health challenges that left the sport. A major Italian soccer coach we mentioned from the last time who had to uh, uh, leave for mental health reasons. Jay Graham from Alabama had to leave for mental health reasons. Andretel Simmons from from baseball ended up take, op- opting out of the bubble at the end of the last year. It's this change in routine and then we all as individuals to be able to relate to these athletes, it's they're dealing with the change of routine as well. Okay, you can say they're making all the money or they're getting the pampering and all these other things, but there's additional pieces to their routines that are getting messed up. There's the only way I could describe it. Changes that they have to deal with that we don't have to deal with that you can say, okay, I can see how that stress and trauma build over time during those difficult situations that they're going through, like Mark Few is is, is advocating for, messes with someone to the point where, wow, they're now at a place where they're starting to develop symptoms, and this is now starting to get serious. So, Theo, I'm curious what you think of that, that they had to literally fight for air, you know, and the importance of getting fresh air because originally it was not thought of until Mark brought it up and was like, wait a minute, no, as a coach – like, I need this or mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, really have issues. Uh, and they finally relented, which I thought was critical because we all take that for granted about how we all need air, like literally fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to uh, be isolated, you know, because I know, uh, you know, I hate isolation. You know, part of my trauma uh, that I that I experienced, you know, I got molested in a dark room. So me being in a room by myself for days on end, that wouldn't have been a good scene. You wouldn't have made it, man. <laughs> I wouldn't have made it, you know. And uh, but what I'm interested to ask you, Andy, were, was there any sort of practice for their mental illness? Were they doing yoga? Were they meditating? Were they, you know, were they taking care of their, their, their mental stuff that that they were dealing with? I don't think they did. I think it was definitely a acute situation where suddenly the stressors were going too high and then suddenly you had to deal with it. Uh, I do think in hindsight, as we sort of hopefully, you know, we won't have to go through this again. I think that's going to be something that's to be critically looked at as we sort of, you know, review everything that people were not prepared for the isolation, for the quarantine. Um, You know, it's almost, I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but it's almost like they should have done almost practices that astronauts go through, you know, when astronauts get prepared uh, to go into space and they deal with, you know, how they're going to deal with, you know, the, the gravity aspect or, um, you know, being, being confined. Yeah, being confined to a small space yeah. and how you could handle it uh, for for a number of time or how you can handle literally being with these three people yeah. for months on end. That statement right there blows my mind. Blows my mind that there was no support for mental wellness at all. 
That blows my mind. Let me say this to you. I think there was, as it went along, I don't think there was on the front end mm -hmm. to where they said, okay, how are we going to handle the only people you're going to see yeah. are these people right here, mm -hmm. you know? And on one side, there were some teams that became like this, you know, and yeah. they, were, they were their brothers. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there were others where there was fractions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that there definitely could have been much more on the front end of how are we going to handle yeah. rather than just at the beginning say, hey, yeah. the only people you're ever going to see are these people. No girlfriends, nothing. Uh, you're not going to see your family for 10 months or whatever it is. Uh, and I, I don't know if that was – if everyone was prepared for what that meant because also I'd also like to know but, 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 script, how players felt with – and I'm curious about this, Theo, you know, how did players feel that the coaches – Right. Could go home to their families, okay? Yeah. But the players could not. Yeah. So the coaches could go home, be with their kids, their spouse, and yeah. yet the player could not have any of that because of the fear of cracking that bubble. Right. But still blows my mind because, you know, if you look at Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and those guys, what made them great? They were mentally tough. No matter what you threw at them, they they you know they had so much resilience already built up inside of them that whatever they threw at them didn't bother them at all, right? And in my experience in professional hockey, five percent is ability. Everybody can play the game. Everybody can shoot the three. Everybody can pass the ball. But what makes you great? is the mental part of the game, which is 95% of the, of the whole entire package. And they were just figuring this out in 2021 that maybe these guys need some support mentally. That's what blows my mind. Well, the other thing too, I'd like to see maybe a year from now, if we look at all the champions in every sport, how many of them were dominated by veteran players? Because I thought right at the beginning, there is no way a team that's like got a bunch of one and dones and freshmen is going to win the national championship. No yeah, way. That, no way is that team totally true through all of this. Um, and did you give that tip to Darren so he could bet on it? You know, a team with a bunch of rookies normally is not going to win the Stanley Cup anyway, but oh, certainly right. not this year. Yeah, not right. with all these kind of curveballs. Yeah. And Andy brings up a good point. Darren, I just want to want to add what Andy brings up a good point about what the coaches were able to do in terms of going home, and then what Theo brings up about there might not have been the support there. In fairness to the NCAA, we've seen them take more and more strides. I can't speak to the tournament specifically, but look, I'm sure there are some competitive coaches because I know this because we present to coaches when we go around the country on the D1 level who might have looked at a bubble type of situation or a contained city type of situation and said wow, I'm going to get my athletes to be able to focus on this sport that much more. We're going to perform at such a high level, right? And so I think we do need to take into consideration here some of the factors of play of lack of education of if I get greater focus on what their main area is that they need to, 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 to thrive in, which is basketball, they'll be fine. They're going to be even better. Not realizing how much of it is if we don't let their mental health be a healthy part of this overall individual it might actually hurt performance uh i just want to talk about the astronaut 
part that Andy brought up because as someone who who's a big fan of uh, the Gemini and Apollo program, you know, sometimes astronauts were selected that were not uh, in line to 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 go. Um, you know, John Glenn was the first to orbit the Earth, partly because of his mental fortitude. Um, and and there there were some selections and people who were leapfrogged in the Apollo program in particular because of the thought that their mental ability um, was pristine and amazing and it depended on if there was one person in the ship versus two or three so andy i thought that was pretty astute and then the other thing i would say is i hope and pray that you know we didn't have the support the mental health support here but i hope that now that things are back down and hopefully we had we go back to life as we knew know it and knew it um, I hope that the support, we realize we need support now, right? Because I didn't call my therapist this year more than I did last year. Why? Because I was still on the same timeline because I hit my mental health, right? Like I, I, I took care of myself, but, but I think a lot of people now have had to do more therapy and more work because this is the first time they're ever working on their mental health because they're within their head. And I just hope that those people work on it now when they need it less the, the same way. And I hope the programs ratchet up even as our life goes back to normal. And, and as a guy who's an advocate, what do I fight every single day as an advocate? I fight stigma. So wouldn't it have been great if, you know, they interviewed one of the Baylor guys and he said, you know what, thank God for our program because they supported us mentally through this thing. And we had, we had VR kits, we had yoga classes, we had meditation classes, because that's the kind of stuff that gets rid of this, this stigma is that these college athletes are doing yoga. You know, one of the best things I ever seen in my whole entire life was uh, there was an indigenous community uh, that I visited called Haida Gwaii, which is in northern British Columbia. It's on an island. And they started a men's mental health group there. And they wanted me to go and speak to kick off this men's mental health group. And I was so excited because, you know, how many men's mental health groups are there on the planet? Not yeah. very many. Not very many. And so I went there. I spoke uh, that night. Um, and then the next morning as I was leaving, getting on the ferry to go back to the mainland, I saw 35 indigenous men doing yoga as I was leaving. And I was like, these guys get it. They get it. Yep. You know? And, and, and so, and, 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 you know, that's what we want to talk about. Like, we've got to change the conversation where you don't always have to struggle with your mental illness. Like, there are lots of really cool things out there, lots of great modalities that can be used to get you out of depression, to get you out of anxiety, to get you, you know, feeling feeling better. You know, the other thing, Eric, Eric, if I can throw this in, that, um, that really uh, – you know, added even more so to any student athletes, especially those uh, of color, um, was this was a chaotic year. And so now you add even that stress and pressure yeah. of what happened over the summer 
into the fall. And because um, I tell, I talked to so many athletes, you know, mostly basketball players, but I did, did other college athletes. Interracial uh, relations. Yes. I mean, that was an added stressor that happened during this year. Um, in addition to COVID, in addition to having your sport taken away. And um, I do think that the plus of the pandemic, if you will, is I really do believe a, a lot of coaches, a lot of white coaches um, are now listening, not just hearing. And I also think that what has changed, and I hope forever, is if you don't feel right for whatever reason, and you go to your coach and you say, you know what, I just, I'm not right today. I need to take a mental health day, you know, and I don't want to say Bobby Knight would never have done that, but the Bobby Knight era of a coach uh, would probably be like, what are you talking about? Tough it out. Get out there. You know, um, you know, no, 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 no. You can't miss today. But I do think now, and I hope it's not going to be universal that you're going to, you know, because there were players who needed to opt out, who needed to take a pause, you know, because it had just been too stressful, whether they were in isolation or quarantine or what have you. And I think that we're going to see more of that now where people are going to say, you know what? I just need to take a break. I maybe need to go home for a week. I just need to pause. And uh, I, I'm hopeful then optimistic that coaches and administrators now will be much more, you know, listeners, not just hearing it, but really listen to their athletes. Andy, there was a there was a player from South Dakota that um that took off Division One South Dakota, Noah Friedel, um, for his mental health. And you, the point that you just brought up, I think, is so important because when you're talking about taking a day, you're going to have people on the end of the spectrum listening to a podcast like this or listening to conversations like this. are going to say, oh, that's soft stuff to have to day, take a day off. That's snowflake stuff to have to take a day off, right? What I want to share, the reason I bring up Noah Friedel's story is the alternative is because Theo and I see it every friggin' day when we talk to people. It happens to teachers. It happens to doctors. It happens to store shop owners. And it happens to athletes like Noah is when you don't address it and you don't take that day off, your performance goes down and you have the chance of missing more time, right? So what we're encouraging people to do is not to say don't work hard, not to say don't bust your butt on the court or on the ice or whatever you're doing. Be the hardest worker who's out there. But when you need it, take it. Your body's telling you something. You're going to be saving yourself more time and getting to a greater performance level by doing that. I just wanted to add that in because I think the point that you're bringing up is so important and explaining to people the positives of actually following that versus the negatives of dealing with what will people say if I ask about it. Take it from the guy who laid on his ass for two and a half years dysfunctional because he never took a day off. You need to do these things. Theo, you're shaking your head. I don't know if you want to add in there. Well, what what university were we at where they had the mental wellness center? Was that William and Mary or Richard? Uh, James Madison? James Madison. And I was like, brilliant, brilliant. Like they had an actual dedicated space where people could go and, and uh, chill. Gym for know? the brain. Yeah. You know, because it's, it, um, you know, why, why was I a great player? Because I was mentally tough, right? And I faced a lot of adversity early on in my life, which then built resilience in me. And, you know, uh, and I also, you know, we all grew up in the suck it up era, right? And now we're seeing the effects of all of the planets sucking it up and not talking about, you know, what's happening. And now we're at, we're at epidemic proportions. 
But Theo, that's why when you're talking about that, you say you fight stigma every day. And I want to be clear with everyone who's listening is we also share that saying fight the stigma, stop the stigma and the stigma doesn't work. It's just a campaign. And so when you're one, it tells people to stop something and where we need more conversation. So that's not good. But it puts people on two two sides of a line, the people being stigmatized and the people who are doing the stigmatizing. That's not good. What Andy was sharing before, which I think you're pointing out here, Theo, is I'm thinking of the image of Eddie George when I first went through what I went through and I came out like what images are going to shock people. And I see this brick shithouse of a guy doing yoga on a mat with a football next to him. I'm like, this is the shit people need to see. Right. So you now take that and you say, OK, why are you so upset that the players didn't get these things to the level you would at least would have liked to be fair to everyone out there in the bubble uh, uh, with the NCAA tournament? Part of it is the healthy athletes. Big piece of it. Part of it is the way to normalize conversation is not to say stop the stigma. It's for people who are in these situations to say this worked for me. This is what I needed to work on, and this is how it helped. And when you see people saying that who weren't saying it before, that's what changes the conversation. And the other thing I just want to add real quick, guys, is that this also applies to the coaches. Um, you know, I know I'm talking a lot about the players and the student athletes and all that, but I also think that coaches should now also look at themselves and, you know, okay, maybe it's not game seven, but, you know, it's February 10th. And you know what? I've been grinding, watching film, yeah. traveling, da-da-da-da. Hey, to my assistants, to my GM, to whoever, to my athletic director, I need a day. I may need two days. Yeah. I'm not abandoning the ship here, but I just need a reset. And that's okay. And I think people, you know, I hope that people are listening, you know, would understand that even the person in charge is going to need that too. Because I've talked yeah. to plenty of coaches who have reached their limit and I can tell at different points in the year where they need a pause uh, and feel the pressure that they can't take that pause. So why I think is Bill Cowher no longer in football? Why is Bill Cowher like, you know, I, and maybe because he loves being at home, but Andy, the point that you're bringing up, which is so awesome and it, and it, and it extends back to what Theo and I were talking about earlier is stress and trauma is a cumulative build. And when we're wired as athletes, as coaches, as anyone in a high-performance environment where we get that dopamine hit out of, I'm doing more, I'm watching more film, I'm going to the gym more, we think we're doing something positive for ourselves because we're enjoying it. And what we're not realizing it is the accumulation of the stuff that's building up, the bag that we're holding that's getting heavy, eventually in time, that takes us down, right? And, and you could even look at like coaches, you could say, who had a long career, there's so many other after effects of that stress and trauma build. Even if you have a long career that's successful, why do we lose coaches at young ages, right? I'm not going to get controversial in naming some coaches in college basketball, but I could think of three off the top of my head. We either lost at a really young age or, you know, uh, 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 they, they developed certain um, disorders, right? Like the question is, where do these things come from and how does that build inside of us the mental, physical connection that exists? Well, I'm going to tell you another thing, too, that drives me crazy is that uh, if I'm allowed to say that is that, you know, these coaches that think that um, they're somehow scoring more if they're in the office at 6 a.m., especially football coaches, and then they're there till 2 a.m. Oh, crazy. Have families, you know, like to me, I think your general manager, your athletic director should encourage you. You know what? Take your kids to school. Yes. Maybe today go have lunch with your kid at the elementary school or you know what? 
um, we don't have practice today, or maybe you have your practice later and go watch your kid play, you know, in this game. Uh, because in the big picture, you're not going to have that kind of stress at home if you've at least created some sort of balance. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, I've never thought like, you know, these guys, oh, you know, I'm there at 6 a.m. You know, I'm working harder than anyone. No, you're really not because you're not working work. smart. Yeah. You're not efficient <laughs> with your time. You're not working smartly. Yeah. Um, it's not some badge of honor that I was there from 6 a.m. to 3 a.m. No, you're being stupid here and you're not managing your own life. I wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to talk about the. Uh, we talk a ton about the weight rooms of uh, both the women and the men, and the comparison there, whether that was fair or not during during uh, you know the the NCAA tournament. Uh, it got a lot of press, but you know it's funny that we that no one ever talked about anything mental, and it's almost like it's almost like when you're injured and you're injured physically, you can see it. And because you can't see, you can see a weight room difference, but because you can't see something that's going on in people's heads, it's so much less uh, easy to just let go. You can, you just let it go. And it's just, it's just interesting to me as we talked about the need to maybe have a little bit more support and do more, which I think will happen. Um, you know, that, that the physical of the weight rooms gets talked about so much and the, and, and the, the mental health and the things that you can't see don't get talked about at all, at all. Well, and, and, you know, you bring up women's basketball, I'll just tell you the stress that Stanford went through because Santa Clara County was basically shut down and they were on the road, I think for 60 plus days where they were uh, basically all over the country. They finally resettled in Santa Cruz before finally in late February, they were allowed to return to Stanford's campus. You can't do that. That's not th- I mean, literally they were on. The, now, the reason they got away with it academically is because everything was virtual. But the stress of being on the road for 60 plus days, I mean, that that weighs on you tremendously. Yeah. And, and the attitude is, you know, those dog days of February where pretty much every coach that I played for had sucked absolutely every last ounce of anything you had left. And you know what they would say? Wow, we got to work them harder. We got to do more video. We got, you know, they just kept, you know, and then, and then you lose in the first round of the playoffs and you're sitting in the coach's room and he's asking you what happened. I said, you need to fucking relax, man, because you drove us so hard that when it came to April, when it was time to play in the playoffs, we had nothing. We had nothing. So, curious, what would happen in the middle of an NHL season, uh, let's say whatever, five years ago, ten years ago, uh, and you're playing for the Penguins, whoever, if you said, you know what, I need a day or two. I just need to just get away for a day or two. No shot. What would the head coach say? No shot. Get, Get your gear on. Let's go. Get a good sweat. You know, you'll feel better after a sweat. And uh, jump in the jump in the steam room after. Have a good have a good sweat. You'll be good. Would the team would the team fine you? Would they say, you know what, you're supposed to be here? I said, you know what? I need a day or two. Would well, you get fined? No, you wouldn't get fined. You would you would uh heavily tarnish your your reputation as being a wuss, right? Would you, you, would you play? Would you play when you came back? If you would left that, every day? Would you get playing time? 
Would you play when you came back? Yeah, of course, because they didn't have anybody else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, and and yeah, good, look, I'm curious so, to so what did we do? We we compensated by doing what? Drinking. Drugs. Drugs. You know, and then, you know, uh, um, you know, because every professional athlete wants an edge, right? They, they want an edge, right? So I remember, you know, when Sudafed was big, right? You take Sudafed. Then, you know, all of, like, then GNC was invented and they had all this stuff like ripped fuel and aging. Yeah, it was like before a game, it was unbelievable the shit that we were taking because thermogenic in February, you knew in warm up that you had no legs and you're like, well, I'm the highest paid guy in the team. You know, this is a big game. We need to win. I don't have any legs. Well, you go in the trainer's room and you find an upper and take as many of those as you can. And then after the game, you're so wired because you've taken all these supplements. The only way to come down is the drink. I'm curious, Theo, and I don't want to tarnish, you know, the, the occupation. Whose podcast but, is this? No, I, <laughs> how trained are athletic trainers to deal with mental health? They're not. No, like, not. I don't think anybody is in the space because, you know, it's hard to believe that mental health is new. It really is. Like, we're... We're sort of at the beginning of acknowledging yep. that that you know there are mental health stressors and we should do something about them, but we don't know what to do about them. You know what I mean? And so, um, and, and that's a good, and that's a good thing for us because Eric and I and and Darren, we've all had our we've all had our meltdowns which have caused us to get into therapy, to get on a journey of healing, to do all those things. And then, you know, we're smart enough not to just try one thing, but we'll try numerous things that are out there on the holistic side of, of uh, mental illness, you know? And, and that's where we come from as being in recovery from having depression or anxiety or whatever label you want to attach to it, right? You know, I got 10 of them. I got 10 different labels. But, you know, there are things available that can help you in the moment, in the moment that can help you shift that brain chemistry that's going yeah. south. And you can, you can recalibrate it and get it back, you know. Like Eric's story is, is perfect, you know. Two and a half years laying in bed, like numerous scripts, shock therapy to his brain, everything. He goes to a breathing class and changes his life. You know, that's the kind and, and of I stuff. Think, well, Theo, to, to piggyback on that, you know, Andy's asking about are the trainers trained in this? So, Andy, if you looked at the stories about a year, year and a half ago, the NFL and the NBA came out with these announcements requiring mental health professionals to work at teams, right? So then you could say, okay, well, the team has mental health professionals, but I'm going to give a real and raw insider view without giving some names here. One is these players aren't comfortable going to these mental health professionals because 
the guys who've been to mental health professionals before and have been public about it have gotten these labels given to them, depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD. So the second a player goes to the team professional, they're thinking, I'm going to be labeled with that. They also don't realize what these professionals can help them with because there's not a culture bridge to explain that to them. It's like professional, just like any other employee assistance program, any other freaking company in the country or the world for that matter, where you don't, you know, some people use them and most people don't. Add another layer to that, which is the second you start sharing and opening up with a team employee about your stuff, you got to worry about, is that being used against me and you're going to be used in contract negotiations moving forward, regardless of what HIPAA compliance and all that stuff is. So, so Darren, do you think that's a good segue? You know, even if we do five minutes on it to end here on the, on the Robin story that, that came out today, Robin Leonard. Yeah, let's just quickly uh, talk about Robin Leonard and kind of what originally drove this. So, Eric, why don't you just quickly uh, summarize what happened? Yeah, I'll do. I'll do it quickly. So, so Robin um, was part of you know part of the Vegas Golden Knights, and what he shared today in a press conference was back a number of months ago. Uh, they were at a, a team meeting on, on the road, and it was presented to them the plans that the NBA, um, their vaccine protocols, that if they had 85% of their traveling party uh, get the vaccine, there would be certain restrictions that are loosened. It goes back to what Andy was sharing with some of the protocols for the players earlier on. So going you know, hotel to, to arena, arena to home, and not being able to go out with your family, not being able to go to the store, not being able to have other family members over. And... Um, you know, 10 days passed from when the, the Golden Knights reached that threshold. And Robin was told by some powers that be um, that they weren't lifting the restrictions. And when he dove a little bit deeper into it uh, and checked with some folks at the PA, what he was told was it would impact competitive balance um, and give some a fair advantage. If the teams that did take advantage of this versus the teams that either didn't or couldn't because of state restrictions, it would give competitive uh, balance advantage to some versus others. He freaked out about that because of how COVID is impacting mental health with all the isolation that he's dealing with. And he went off in a press conference today. In fairness to Robin, because he's a friend and he's a collaborator with us, he made one comment in there where he said, I feel like I'm in a prison. What he meant was a prison in his mind. And he clarified that afterwards. He's got the the jail uh, uh, insignia on on his plate on the back of his helmet, showing that he feels like jailed in his mind when he's in his own brain and not able to communicate with others. Uh, Theo, you're smiling a little bit because we can all relate in that way. But you know, I I don't think this show is is to make controversy over what did the NHL say, what did the NHLPA say, did they say anything? Did they only say it to the Knights? Uh, did all the players hear it? I think the important takeaway from all this is. We grew up in the era where we watched guys like Theo play and we thought, or at least we were told, maybe we didn't think, or at least we were told, these guys are indestructible. They go out on the ice, they go out on the court, they go out in the field, nothing impacts them, nothing gets to them, and they just, and you get an athlete like now, like Robin, who's willing to be open and honest about how things impact him, these routines are getting to these guys, and the men and women, I'm sorry. And and these what's gone on with COVID is getting to them, but I think the theme of this this conversation has been how it's getting to uh, 
athletes generally and how they're more and more opening up that it's not the Kevin Love story that Kevin Love has anxiety so he's part of the one in five group along with DeMar who's got depression no it's every athlete deals with a baseline of mental health that fluctuates based on life experiences and based on the stressors and traumas in their life the more we come to that realization as a society because we look at sports to be the leading force behind so much social change and you were talking about social change as well in other areas we need athletes to come out and say it's not that that prescott alone it's not hayden hurst alone it's not kevin love it's not demar Derozan. it's all of us it might not be to that level but it's all of us well i would just say i mean i'm sort of baffled by this story because uh, especially now when in every state, supposedly 16 and over, you can get the vaccine. Uh, I know Canada is different right now, but I, I don't understand how you wouldn't want 85% of your team to get vaccinated. And if you did, you know, too bad. You know, if the other team didn't do it, you have freedoms. What message, does it, send? What message does it send, Andy? You know, it, I mean, first of all, you can't have rules that in a, I don't think, a league or a team that supersede the rules in the state. So if in the state they say vaccinated people can do X, Y, and Z, how can the NHL say they can't? You know, I mean, that, that's what I don't understand. Without getting a point. Well, but we're getting to a point in the pandemic where, uh, at least in this country, things are starting to get loosened because of the number of people vaccinated as a, as a enhanced or an enticement, excuse me, to get vaccinated. So if you can say, that, hey, a vaccinated person, you know, doesn't have to wear a mask outside or can go to this store or that store, um, you know, then I don't see how you can well, limit it. Well, if your whole team meditated and did yoga, guess what? You'd have a significant advantage. advantage. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a great way to uh, end this. Uh, listen, this has been so awesome. I am... So proud, Andy, to call you a friend. I love you. I called you um, a couple hours before this. You gave an hour of your time. Not only that, you gave a really great hour of taking us through everything. And uh, we really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. So I just wanted to thank you, and I love you, man. Well, thank you to both, uh, all three of you. Uh, and uh, this is obviously an unbelievable project that you're all uh, doing and uh, you know, can't wait to listen to more. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, we Andy. Gotta have you, we got to have you back, Andy. Too. You, you, you. Lo it seems like you're psyched about this area and you enjoy talking about it. So yes, I do. Appreciate it. Great. So, so for Eric Hewson and Theo Fleury, uh, this has been we're all a little crazy on the Hockey Podcast Network, and uh, we hope you'll join us next week with another topic whatever comes our way on um, mental health thank you all you just heard we're all a little crazy brought to you by the hashtag same here global mental health movement and the hockey podcast network